This morning's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 39, verses 1 through 23. Uh, So hear now the word of the Lord. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight, and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house, and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house, and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But Joseph refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me my master has no concern about anything in the house, He's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, And none of the men of the house was there in the house. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that, I lifted up my voice and cried out, and he left his garment beside me and fled out and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant who you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Before we jump into that story, let's pray. Uh, Father, each each week we come, we open your word, and we we want you to speak into our our lives. Whatever is true, whatever is good, uh, to direct us into your way. And so, God, do that now. Open your, open your word by your spirit that we may be led into your way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, reading this story over the last couple of weeks, I think the question for me uh, that, that, that just jumps into my mind is, is, how did Joseph keep his integrity in light of enormous pressure on him to lose it? You remember, Joseph, uh, where we were uh, last week, 
Joseph's life begins by being, being taken from his, by his brothers, thrown into a pit, and thrown and, and sold into slavery. And so at this point in Genesis 39, he's, he's a young man, the victim of grave injustice. And so if anyone could be embittered and think to himself, I'm going to do what I want, it'd be Joseph. And I think for me, another reason I asked that question, why his example is so impressive, is because of the cultural moment we are currently experiencing. That this Me Too movement that we've been living in has uncovered story after story of men, famous and well-known, who we found out were, were deeply abusive behind the scenes. And that's the typical story. In fact, Genesis 38 is the story of, of a man being abusive towards a woman, to set up the story of Genesis 39, almost to say, look at how different Joseph is than everybody else in Genesis. And so that's one, I mean, I read the story, how does Joseph not lose his integrity? But even more, I, I think about my own vocation and, and the many, many pastors who have lost their own integrity over, over moments of, of sin. I think what, what highlights this for me probably more than anything is that there were a few years ago, there was a book written called Dangerous Calling, which was a book about sort of how, like the strange uh, pastoral vocation and culture in the American church world, and in particular, how, uh, how pastors are prone to fall. And so it's, a, it's an interesting book, and, and he basically critiques the way pastors often operate within a culture. And it's, it's, been very, it's made me very intentional about a number of patterns and ways I operate within this Space And that's probably a sermon uh, in and of itself that probably would be worth talking, talking out. But the basic point of the book is, like, American pastors are prone to fall because of, of sort of some strange realities within church culture in, in today. And so it was a really powerful book. And most of the pastors I know read it, were deeply affected by it, changed their lives in significant ways because of it. So it's this groundbreaking book about pastors who fall and how to help them. Well, today, if you, if you were to buy that book, on the back of that book is, are five endorsements by pastors, and three of whom are not, or they have lost their integrity and are not pastors anymore. Uh, one for the fact that his church covered up abuse, another for sexual sin, and another for abusive leadership and dishonest financial dealings. So the book about like pastors and how they keep their integrity was endorsed by three people who were not practicing anything that book said and put their endorsement on it to say, yes, be like this. And that's why I just thought, like, the story of Joseph is not the norm. And yet, for those of us in the way of God who follow Jesus, this should be the norm. This should be how it, it is, that in moments of great temptation, our integrity shines instead of, of falling away. And so we all need to think about this question. Well, you know, my own position, I have unique questions. I need to think about you and your positions. You have unique questions you need to think about. And so this morning, really, like I want to look at Genesis 39, Joseph's life, and just ask, like, how do we, how do we live a life where we don't lose our integrity, where we say no to temptation? And so I just want to, I want to meditate sort of on three ideas about integrity out of this passage in light of, of this story. And where I want to start is that integrity, a life of integrity, first sees the beauty in saying no. So we, we live in a time uh, of sort of rapid change, and one of the, the rapid changes within our culture is that sort of an idea that used to be assumed as true in the past, our culture is now contesting, which is, is past cultures have pointed out that one of the things that makes a human being really unique is that we can say no. We have moral reasoning. 
Right, so we can look at, a, at something in front of us and say, you know, as much as I want to do that, that's a bad idea. I shouldn't do it. I'm not going to do it. Whereas animals, they see something they want to do, and they're like, I'm going to do it. Right? There, there's, no, like, there's no no button for them. There's no no filter. Whereas we as human beings, that's what makes us uniquely human is that we have a desire or we see something in front of us that we want, and we can say, no, I shouldn't do that. And so Augustine, an early Christian, he wrote a book called Confessions, which is, is all about that, all about our desires and saying no. And he has this line, which has, has been, uh, just been in my own mind, uh, uh, especially through the last few months. But he says this, which may not be, make sense, but let me explain it. He says, my weight is my life. By it I'm born wherever I'm born. Now, when he, what he means, when he says his weight, he's talking about his desires, that his desires have a weight to them, and they carry him in a particular direction, right? My desires take me somewhere, and wherever they take me, that's where I'm born. I wake up. That's where I am. My desires carry me in a certain direction. And so what he, what he is saying is, like, that's why you have to say no to certain desires, because they may take you somewhere that you don't want to go. And so what he means is our, our desires are like, they're like Google Maps, Right? It's like they're, they're giving us directions. They're saying, turn left here, go right there. And they're taking us to a destination, to a place. And for Augustine and for most human beings throughout history, that's potentially very, very dangerous. Because whatever your desires are as a GPS device, they're taking you somewhere. And they might be taking you to a place that's, that's trouble. So I think the best way to illustrate this is a 30-second clip from The Office. So take a look. Yeah, so like what, what our desires are, they are a GPS device telling us to go particular ways. And if your desires are not good desires, they will dr- they'll drive you into a lake. Right, Michael Scott, the machine knows, right? Our desires know. And if you follow them unchecked, you end up, if they're, if they're not good desires, you end up in a lake. So one of the most important things you will do and can do as a human being is say no. Say, I'm not going to do that. It's one of the things, actually, that makes you uniquely human. Um, and yet our culture completely disagrees with that idea. And particularly around what's at issue here with Joseph, around the idea of sexuality. That our own culture would say, saying no to your sexuality is actually, that's a harmful thing to do. To, to deny your desires, to not follow your desires when it comes to the issues of sexuality. Like, that is actually really harmful to you. And so the result is you and I live in a, in a world much like Joseph, where there is, is sexual temptation around every corner of our, our existence. There's, there's pornography, there's sexual promiscuity uh, that's celebrated in TV shows and in movies. And the, the idea here that Joseph holds dearly, that drives his actions, that uh, sexuality should only be expressed with a married person in the covenant of marriage, which avoids a ton of disaster, that idea is sort of mocked in our culture today. And people who try to live into that, that idea are mocked within our culture today. That we live, and listen, if you're a Christian, you're like, yeah, I agree with all that. No, 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 no. You live in a culture where we breathe in 
the air and the ideas of, of you know, of Elizabeth Gilbert's Eat, Pray, Love, right? If you find a, a spouse that, you know, if you get tired of your spouse and you find someone more attractive, just move on, right? Just go, follow your desires. Don't, dep- if you depress them or if you suppress them, like it's just, it's going to go bad for you. Just if you feel something, you need to do it. And so we've rejected our uh, Augustine's warnings, which is that our desires are weight and they're carrying us somewhere. And we never, where are they carrying us? Where are they, into a lake? Or into somewhere good? And so I just want to pause there for like the importance of just as human beings, just saying no to things. Actually, it's like it's all the evidence all around us that actually saying no can be a very beautiful, good thing, not a not a suppressing thing. And I want to work that out in a couple of ways. One is that that saying no is actually is actually an incredibly freeing thing. That David Brooks, he's written a book called The Second Mountain, and he uh, he has this line about how uh, later in life, as you make commitments to people, it's those chains and the commitments you, that you make to people. It's those chains that set you free, right? A beautiful life is, is given to others, not just in freedom to whatever you want to do. Or to illustrate this, like I, I think one of the things that's been surprising to my own life is how much that I've, I've like really begun to enjoy running. And in a few weeks, uh, Andrew, Katie, and I, we're going to run the, the Kansas City Half Marathon together. Uh, Nate Hart's a bike rider, not a runner, so I don't, and I don't think you can run, uh, ride a bike during a running marathon. I don't know, but he's not going to be with us, but the three of us are going to do that. And, and one of the things that's just, like, surprised me when it comes to running is, the, like, the joy I feel at the end of it. And yet, to get there, I have to say no to so many things. Like, basically, everything I like to eat, I, have to, I just have to say no. Right, because if you eat burn-ins the night before you run, it just doesn't go well. This is not a good thing. Or I have to get up early in this Kansas City heat. It's like 80 degrees. It's at 5 a.m. And so it's, if I don't want to run at 95, I have to get up at, at 5 a.m. to go running. Like I have to say no to sleeping in, to what I eat, to a number of different things to be able to to have the freedom to get to the end of a long run and just experience the joy and the rush of of what that feels like. Right? And anyone who's played a musical instrument, you know, like hours of practice leads to freedom in the way you express the, uh, your playing through, through musically. The only way to experience freedom is often saying no to a lot of things. And you look even at the story in Genesis 39, it's like, who has the most compelling, beautiful life of, of the main characters? Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, Joseph. The guy who says no. And Potiphar's wife is, is depicted in a way that's, that's not flattering. She only says one thing, which is lie with me, which is, is clear, like she's just driven by her own sexual desires. Potiphar's, uh, uh, Potiphar himself is not depicted very well in the story either. The, the, a number of commentators, this is sort of a debated point, but I, I would lean this direction. It's pretty clear Potiphar didn't believe his wife and yet punished Joseph anyway for a couple of reasons. One is, is you notice uh, that Joseph mentions, uh, or the, the narrator mentions the garments a lot of times through, through the story. And that's because uh, Potiphar's wife has to explain why is Joseph's garment in, uh, in her possession, right? Because if Joseph was the attacker, wouldn't he have grabbed it and not ran out? Because basically having the garment pulled off would have meant Joseph, Joseph would have run through the house basically naked. And so it's like, why would he leave it there if he was the attacker? And then you see her sort of strategically placing it in a certain place before her husband comes home. And so that, that's one reason. The bigger reason is probably if, if Joseph really, if Potiphar really thought Joseph did this, he would have just killed Joseph, not put him in prison. Like this is punishable by death, attacking the wife of a, of a well-known official. And yet Potiphar doesn't do that to Joseph. And so, you know, Potiphar is not depicted particularly well. Potiphar's wife is not depicted particularly well. The one guy who's like, just stands out is the one who's, who says no. 
who has in integrity. And so integrity, it sees the beauty in saying no, of creating restrictions that lead to a more beautiful, free life. So saying no is freeing, one. But second, saying yes to our desires can actually be even more destructive than saying no. And so there, there's, there's, a, there's a key interpretive moment in the story where Joseph explains why he's saying no, and it's in verses 8 and 9. And he gives two reasons why he's not going to do this. And I want to focus on the first, which is verse 8. Uh, Joseph refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. And so Joseph, what he says is, is, I will not do this because I will not destroy Potiphar's life. I think this out with me. I think a lot of us, when we, when we are tempted or when we're like encouraged to do something, we're thinking about ourselves first. All right, well, will this cost me? Can I get away with it? Right? What, what, what's, the, what's, the, what's the actual, you know, what's the result of this on me? Joseph doesn't do any of that. And this is especially surprising because, I mean, throughout the narrative, Potiphar is referred to as Joseph's master. Joseph is, is, is oppressed. He's unjustly been thrown into slavery. He has every right to say, Potiphar has done injustice to me. I'm going to do injustice to him. But he doesn't. He, he has no category for entering this destruction into the life of Potiphar. Joseph isn't thinking of himself. He's thinking of Potiphar. And I think, I think that's a good point of application to where, like, if you're someone who struggles with sexual te- uh, temptation or sin, I think one of the best ways to work at your integrity in that is by narrowing in and focusing on Jesus' second commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Because ultimately, all, what all sexual sin does is it looks at someone else and it says, your life, your body for me. Right? Your life, your body for me, not my life for you. It's a rejection of loving your neighbor. That, that pornography is dehumanizing because it turns people into, into objects. Right? Your body for me. Adultery is destructive to marriage because it, it says of the other person, your life for me. I don't care what destruction I do to you, your body for me. And I know this is, this is where a lot of the debate happens within our culture, but even sex outside of marriage, the covenant of marriage, can produce enormously destructive results in that the number one way to tell whether or not a child will grow up in poverty or not is whether the child is born into a family with both parents present. Even a consensual act among adults can lead to destruction in a child's life. It's not even here yet. And so Wendell Berry, a uh, certainly not a conservative Christian, has said himself that, that uh, all sexual sin is, is communal in nature. Right? It has communal effects. It's, it's a communal act. And even more, more than that, like when you give to your, yourself to someone uh, in a sexual way without giving yourself to them in marriage, completely in marriage, what you're saying is, I want you for me. I'm not willing to give you my financial promises. I'm not willing to give you till death do, do us part. I'm not willing to give myself relationally to you. It's you for me. Not me. Marriage is saying me for you till death do us part. To avoid this, we need patterns and habits and rhythms in your life of saying, not, not your life for me, not, not your body for me, but my life for you, my, my body for, for you. And service does this. Lowing your position, loving your neighbor as yourself does that and is a way of indirectly working at sexual temptation. I think ultimately like, that's why Joseph is so 
like powerfully able to say no here is his entire life, even though it's a product of injustice, is one of service. His entire life is my life for others, right? Not, it's not about me. It's my life for others. And so he gets to this moment of temptation, and he doesn't, the most important thing in the conversation is not himself. He cannot imagine destroying Potiphar's life in this way. And so he says no. So integrity, it sees the beauty of no. It's what makes us uniquely human. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. And secondly, uh, integrity, it sees sin for what it is. And for a second reading, I want to dive right into a concept that our culture just kind of finds either sort of silly or abusive. And I talked about this last week, but probably when I say the word sin, a lot of us think like that extra piece of chocolate after dinner, or we think of something more abusive and shaming, which is you're a sinner, right? A, a word meant to, to shame people or to embarrass them. And yet that's not the way the Bible talks about, about sin. Um, and, and so the way, the, the, way Bible, the Bible talks about sin is something much closer to Michael Scott and his GPS device, right? We have these desires. They're not good. They produce death in us and others. And they're pointing us in the wrong direction, towards the wrong end. And yet, uh, the Bible would make it like, we're not just victims in this, right? It's not just a bunch of things have been done to us, and now we're just, we're moving in a bad direction. It's like, we also, we sort of enjoy driving into a lake sometimes. And so I, I quoted uh, a guy named Francis Bufford last week. I think he's written, for me, the most clear and concise uh, doctrine of sin in our, our own cultural day. And, and here's what he, here's how we, I used one quote last week. Here's another way that he talks about sin and the way it works in us. He writes, sin is bad news. And like all bad news, it's not very welcome, especially if you let yourself take seriously the implication that we actually want the destructive things we do. That they are not an accident that just keeps happening to poor little us, but part of our nature. That we are truly cruel as well as truly tender, truly loving and at the same time truly likely to take a quick, nasty little pleasure in wasting or breaking love, scorching it knowingly up as the fuel for some hotter or more exciting feeling. We would, on the whole, very much like this not to be true, and our culture conspires to help us avoid and defer and ignore the sting of it as much as possible. The purveyors of fleeting images do their damnedest to keep us feeling that we can be as we wish ourselves to be. That last line is, it to me, just nails this current cultural moment when it comes to sin. What, what our, our cultural moment wants to say to us is, is you're just a victim, right? You don't, you don't do anything wrong. You're, you're okay. Like, there's no sin nature, and you don't, don't think that. And what, what Spufford says is at some point, you have to take seriously the fact that the decisions that I make bring destruction in people's lives, and I keep making them. I keep making the same decision and producing destruction in people's lives, which means I... I don't yet hate it enough to stop. I'm not quite at the moment of Joseph and saying, I will not bring destruction in other people's lives. I'm still doing it. And whatever, it, whatever reason, whether it's, there's a feeling I get out of it that I like, even for just a moment, whatever it is, I, I keep coming back to that well again and again and again. And so Spuffer, he, he nails two things about the biblical idea of sin that I, I want us not to miss, which is first that we're not, we are complicit in our sin. We're not just victims. That we do things that actually like, bring harm and destruction to other people, whether it's gossip or anger or yelling, speaking a harsh word. All of that is bringing destruction to other people. Sin destroys that. And Spufford goes on to say, unless you're just enormously oblivious to yourself and you just don't want to do any self-work and you just let the culture 
numb you and blind you to you as you really are, you're going to begin to see that in yourself. And like, why can't I stop? Why, why am I going back to this well again and again and again? Joseph, on the other hand, has moved past that. And he is horrified at the idea that this act would wreak so much destruction in the house that he works in, in the man that he works for, in the life that he's built for himself. And he just can't imagine doing it. And so I would just like pause and ask yourself this. In the last time you were tempted or about to sin, do something wrong, when was the last time you paused and considered the destruction to others that your actions were producing? If you're anything like me, I typically think about myself first. What will this do to me? What are the consequences for me? Joseph doesn't do that. His first reaction is, what are the consequences to Potiphar if I do this? And that's seeing sin for what it really is. is that, that sin isn't just, well, I, 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 do, I do things wrong, I make mistakes. It's actually, it's, no, sin is I'm destroying others. And so therefore, integrity, temptation, requires thinking about others first. So that's one, I mean, Spiver says you have to understand your complicity in sin. But secondly, is that sin, uh, we live in a culture that sin wants to, or a culture that convinces us that we can be as we want ourselves to be which is to see ourselves sort of at the center of the universe as never the ones producing wrong or producing destruction in others, but always as the ones like, well, we have an explanation and this was done to me, so therefore I'm going to do this. And so our culture encourages that in us. And, and yet Joseph's, his closing argument for why he will not do this sort of undoes that reason in us as well. So Joseph, he says, I can't do this to Potiphar. And then verse 9, this is how he closes his little speech. He says, lastly, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? The most important consideration in Joseph's life is God. For him, it's not what will happen to me, what will happen to Potiphar. It's I, how could I do this to God? That's Joseph's response. And I, so again, I, like when... Moment of temptation, moment of sin. When was the last time that you said to yourself, I can't do that because how could I do that to God? And this is where I want to be careful here because this is where a lot of times people have started then going into like God, is he's, he's this rule keeper up in heaven. He's got the rules and he's, you know, he's got a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's not. You know, it's that, I'm going to finish the line because that's lame. But, you know, it's, he's, he's the rule keeper and he's watching you in the rules. And that's what, and if you break the rules, you're a sinner and that's bad. And, and yet, that's not the way the Bible depicts sin. At the best one-liner definition I've seen in the or of sin I've heard in the biblical sense is from Cornelius Plantinga. He wrote a book called uh, uh, something about not uh, how it ought to be or not to be, um, and he defines sin as as this. He says the cul- sin is the culpable disturbance of shalom. Right? I just remember the title of the book. Not the way it's supposed to be. There it is. That's the name of the book. And he defines sin as the culpable disturbance. Of Shalom, which sounds like the definition of a theologian we gave a lot of you probably like that just went over my head. It went over my head the first time too. So let me let me break that down. What is Shalom, right? What does Shalom mean? Here's how Planica's answer, how he defines Shalom. In the Bible, Shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and a delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors, and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. 
Right, so the way we think we should think of sin is sin is not like you're doing bad things and you're breaking rules, stop it. Although, I mean, it's true, right? You are breaking rules, but that's not the framework the Bible gives. Think of it more like, more like this. Let's say, let's say you decide you're going to throw a party for all of your closest friends. And so you're going all, all in. And you find the best food that you can get, right? The best barbecue in Kansas City is going to be there. The best drink that you can find, that's, that's going to be there as well. You find the best location and you invite all your friends. It's a huge party. Everyone's invited. Uh, but at some point during the party, everyone's having a great time. But there's someone at the party that's had a little bit too much to drink, and they, they start a fight. So you go over to that person, and you're like, hey, knock it off. right? This, this is a party. Right? This is shalom. This is the way it ought to be. We're just eating, drinking, having a good time. Stop it. You leave, and a few minutes later, uh, you, hear, you hear a loud clanging, and you turn around. And that same person now, they've gone uh, to the burnt ends, and they've just knocked them all over onto the ground. We're just going to keep the burnt ends theme going uh, throughout, the, throughout the morning. And they just knock all the food down. You're like, why would you do that? Like, that's the best, that's the best food item that is here. Why would you why, stop it? Knock it off. Um, and then a few minutes later pass, and the same person, uh, now you hear yelling, and they're yelling at someone else again. You go, like, what is your, what is your problem? Like, why are you ruining this, this party? And that, to me, that is the definition of what sin is in the biblical sense, is that God has thrown us an incredible party with incredible goods. Remember back Genesis 1, this world is full of incredible experiences and pleasures for all of us to be had. Like, we're in one big party, is what God has invited us to. And we all, what we're doing is we're knocking over the burdens, we've had too much to drink, we're starting fights, we're taking shalom and we're disturbing it, we're ruining it in a, in a place God has given us. And that's the way sin is depicted. It's not so much that we break rules, but that we, we've been invited into a world with God and we're like, no, nah, we're going to run this joint instead of you. That's what sin is, the culpable disturbance of shalom. Sin is not just a proclivity of me to make a mistake. A sin is a proclivity of me to look at this world I'm living in and say, I'm going to do what I want here. Regardless of the, the, the creator who's invited me into this place, I'm going to live how I want. And Joseph has no category for that. He sees a world of sexuality and a world of marriage and a world of, of service to his, his master, even though it's injustice. And he says, how could I do that to God? So integrity, it, it says no. It sees sin as it really is. And, and this leads us into the third point, which is integrity is the fruit of true intimacy. And so that we skip a chapter in, in terms of our preaching narrative. So last week we were in Genesis 37. We skip Genesis 38, and then we end up in Genesis 39. And what, what's happening in that, that gap is we, we sort of leave the Joseph narrative. At the end of Joseph 30, Genesis 37, Joseph is sold off into slavery. Genesis 38 is not about Joseph. And so then we come into Genesis 39, and we're all asking, well, what happened to Joseph? He was sold into slavery. What happened to him? And in the first six verses, the narrator wants us to, to know very clearly what has happened to Joseph. And you see a theme emerge. It's very important. So just, I'll, I'll kind of read through that theme without reading through all the verses. So in verse 2, we, we read, The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. Verse 3, his master, Potiphar, saw that the Lord was with Joseph and that the Lord caused all that Joseph did to succeed in his hands. The first half of verse 5, from the time that Potiphar made Joseph overseer in his house and overseer of all that he had, the Lord blessed the, Joseph, uh, the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And then the last half of verse 5, the blessing of the Lord was on all that Potiphar had in house 
and feel. And so the narrator goes out of his way to say the Lord was with Joseph in this unique way, so much so that anyone that got near to Joseph got blessings poured out on them. Now, me as like contrarian question asker, my, the question I immediately start asking, well, was God with Joseph in the pit? When his brothers uh, sold him into slavery, was, God, was the Lord with him then? Like, why didn't God make Joseph successful before he was thrown in the pit, before he was put into slavery? And those questions will only get intensified as the narrative continues, because what happens to Joseph is that he, he maintains his integrity with Potiphar's wife, and his reward for maintaining his integrity and saying no is that his life gets completely wrecked a second time. And he ends up in prison. He's thrown into jail. And, and so there Joseph is a second time he is, he is in prison. And so we're left to ask, okay, well, what now? He's thrown in a pit, sold into slavery, injustice. Then he, he, he rises back up from the ashes now injustice is done again to him again. He's in prison again. So what's going to happen with him? And here's, here's, what we, here's how the story ends. Verse 20. Joseph's master took him, put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Verse 23, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with Joseph. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So the narrative begins, Joseph in slavery, the Lord was with him. Product of injustice. And at the end of the story, Joseph's in prison, product of injustice, the Lord was with them. And again, the questions I'm asking is like, like, can the Lord be with them before injustice or like through injustice, like prevent injustice? Why not bless Joseph by keeping him out of prison, right? That feels like a better blessing than blessing him in prison. And those are the questions that I ask. Those are not the questions Joseph asks. Because Joseph's integrity is not for himself. It's not even for Potiphar, for his neighbor. Just like our own integrity should not be for ourselves or for our, other, uh, for our neighbors to look good. Ultimately, integrity is for God. Integrity is the fruit of intimacy of a life with God. And it's why Joseph, in the moment of temptation, his question is not what will happen to me. The question is, how could I do this to God? And so his reward, his whole reason for living, it's not a good reputation. It's not money. It's not fame, success. His whole reason for living is God. God is his reward. And the fruit of a life walking with God, of intimacy with God, a fruit of the Lord is with you, is integrity, is resistance to temptation, is to saying no, a life of beautiful service to others, not a life of self-centered pursuits. And so as we close, two ways I want us to think this out. Right? If integrity is a life of intimacy with God, first, you need to have a life where God is directing your steps toward integrity. Right? Which is a disposition, it's a way of life. And so earlier I quoted from Augustine's Confessions, and what's really interesting about that book, it's sort of the, it's maybe the first autobiography that was ever written. Um, it's sort of like the, certainly the first spiritual autobiography that was ever, that was ever written. But what Augustine does, he, he doesn't write from the first person narrative, right? Like I was thinking about this and I said this and I did this. It's not even written for the reader. The entire book, Confessions, and it's a long book. The entire book is a prayer to God. God is the one to whom he addresses. And if you want a life of integrity, like that's, that's what you do. Your entire life is addressed to God. 
right? The fruit of an intimacy with a life with God is integrity. And so he sort of, Augustine sort of prayed his way toward integrity. And there's this great line, this question Augustine asked, that I think all of us should ask. And he says this to God. He says, without you, God, what am I to myself but a guide to my own self-destruction? See, our culture would say that's wrong. That's a, like, sh- don't think that. And yet, if you're a Christian, you should believe that with all your heart. That without God, we are Michael Scott with a GPS device, driving our lives into a lake. That do you see your deep need and dependence on God to direct your steps, to guide your way? God was with Joseph, yes, and God directed his steps toward integrity. So, so first, listen, the fruit of an intimacy is integrity, and God should direct your steps. You should be walking with God. Um, and secondly, where I want to close is, is ultimately why intimacy leads to integrity is that knowing God becomes our reward. For Joseph, his greatest reward in life is, is God, is knowing God. The Lord was with him. The Lord can be with you in prison, in injustice, in oppression. And if, but if God's your reward, those things don't detract from your true reward, which is knowing and being with God. And, and, and listen, the same thing is on offer to all of us this morning. And think this out with me. Jesus was referred to as Emmanuel, God with us. And, and what that meant in Jesus' life is that, that Jesus goes to the cross, right? He goes to the place of death. For all the ways like we've wrecked shalom in this world, the way we've contributed to the breaking down of what God wanted for his world, Jesus went to a cross for that, right? To, come, to, to go on a cross, to die, to be raised to new life, to re-offer us shalom, to re-offer us new life, integrity, wholeness. And Jesus does that, dying on a cross for us. And yet that's not all that's on offer to us. That Jesus said to his disciples, listen, I'm going away soon. I'm going to die. I'm, I'm, I'm leaving you. I'm going to go away. And the disciples are like, but you're really important. Things are going to get worse if you leave. And Jesus says, no, actually, they're going to get better. Because I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. Like after I rise from the dead, you will receive the Holy Spirit on you. Which means you and I, we don't just have like to look back 2,000 years to know God died on the cross for us, was raised to new life to deal with the sin and wreckage in our own lives. But also God sends his spirit to Christians to dwell with us, to guide our steps, to move us in the path towards wholeness and restoration. That Joseph had found in God his reward. And how much more should that be true for us if we are dwelling and walking with him, being led by his spirit, finding our salvation in the cross. So that us, our own lives, even in moments of injustice, of temptation, potentially of false accusations, we could still live a life of beauty. That what is so sad to me is the life of Joseph is not the norm amongst Christians today. And yet it should be because we have so much more at our hands than he ever had. And so I wonder, like, could, could we as a church be known for integrity? I wonder, can I, as, as a pastor in this cultural con- context, be known for the integrity like Joseph? Let's pray. Father, confronting or, or looking at sin square in the face is, is not easy. And yet, in taking the, if, if we take the path of Joseph, the Lord is with us. We find, we find at your feet, Uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus, forgiveness, new life, the Spirit. And so, God, there's some of us in this room, we we need to be more convicted of sin than we are, and we need to enter into that space a little bit. 
And for some of us, God, we need to, to more look onto the, the face and the, the life of Jesus and see the beauty of restoration and redemption offered there and find hope and new life and guidance by your Spirit. And so, Lord, wherever we are this morning, I pray you'd lead us where, we, where you want to. I ask this in, in Jesus' name. Amen.